Good evening. My name is Sharon Henson, and this is another edition of Black Teachers Matter. Here on WBCALP 102.9 FM in Boston, we're Boston's community radio station. My name is Sharon Hinton. I'm the producer and the host of Black Teachers Matter. This evening, as all evenings, we have amazing guests here. I have two of them in the studio with me. We're going to talk about belonging, which just happened Sunday, November 5th at Hibernian Hall in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And it's presented or was presented by Castle of Our Skins. Now, if you've watched my television program on another level, you've met several artists that were brought to my attention by the wonderful Queen Nicole Maxine. And we have to give you a shout out because she's the one that's bringing these amazing people to me. She maximized PR. So if you're looking for someone who can actually get you into other people's heads and places and spaces, Nicole Maxine Maximize PR. Thank you so much for bringing these guests here to my attention. Nicole, you have all these amazing productions. This last one was called Belonging. What does it mean to belong to a person, to a place, to yourself? It was curated by Shirley Graham Du Bois, or Dubois, creative in residence, Jenny Oliver. Belonging included participatory driven and artist curated workshops designed to deepen one's connection to self and an immersive mix of music, dance, and spoken word. For those of you who don't know about Castle of Our Skins, Castle of Our Skins, um, gee, I learned about them even during the pandemic. But it's Boston's concert and educational series dedicated to celebrating Black artistry with close curatorial guidance from its fourth Shirley Graham Dubois creative and residence dancer, Jenny Oliver. And it explores what it means to belong to a person, place, and oneself through its season opener performance. So we just missed the season opener performance, but we do have some people here. For those of you who are from this area, you know that Hibernian Hall is one of the premier places to go for productions. Um, Boston, unfortunately, seems to be a little bereft from creative spaces in the hood, in the black community. I won't call it the hood, the black community. Hibernian Hall is one of them. And so my wonderful guest here, Jija, did I get it right? You I got did. it right. You did a great job. And Steph Davis. So, you know, Gija, I'm going to be a little uh, feminist right now, and I'm going to go with the sister first, the queens first, because okay. queens actually rule. Sorry, young king. But <laughs> uh, So Gija is a Ghanaian-American folklore performing artist, author, and curator. Gija's style of call and response has combined traditional storytelling and Afro folklore and poetry slam through a sonic experience. You know I'm going to ask you to do some of that, right? Oh, is, is that what you guys asked me? I mean, we're going to explore. We've got like about 50 minutes or so. So Jija is moved by the responsibility to alarm the power abundance in the midst of bodies while creating a practice of care and freedom through creativity. We're going to unpack that because that was a whole lot. Jija is the founder of Black Cotton Club and partners with Grub Street, ICA Boston, and Boston Public Schools to teach creative empowerment workshops in Boston. See, Black Teachers Matter She's black. For those of you who can, can, can see her, for those of you who can't, I'm telling you. So, born in Italy to Ghanaian parents and raised in North Carolina, North Carolina, she's immersed herself in merging cultures from the South to Ghanaian culture. Jija has released a book of poems entitled For Girls Who Cry in Yellow, inspired by childhood experiences, healing, and womanhood. Jija has been nominated twice for a Boston Music Award, 
G-Joy released her debut EP entitled Bushwoman on April 10th, 2020. That was like the height of the pandemic. And is currently working on songs that you can find on streaming services everywhere. So that's one of my guests. Thank you. And if we had an applause track, yay. Okay, but we don't. So that's as much as we're going to get. Steph Davis is a marimbist, composer, arranger, Africana studies scholar, and cultural activist. That's a whole lot for this brother. Hailed by the Washington Post as a captivating performer who brings bright humanity and expressive depth to contemporary music. Steph is an active marimba soloist and chamber musician. His repertoire spans a wide variety of musical styles, including West African, African-American, and Western classical. Through his arrangements, commissions, and compositions, Steph has contributed over 20 works by Black composers to the, to the marimba's repertoire. Say that three times. They have premiered works by Pamela Z, Damien Jeter, and Alyssa Voth among others. Equally versed in chamber music, he has performed with noted artists, including Grammy-nominated flautist Natalie Joaquim. Is it Joaquim? Um, Jochim. Okay. It was pronounced Joaquim, so it's Jochim. Thank you. Now, Paviel French. Paviel French. Maz Swift. Michi Wianco. 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 And Yasmin Williams. Thank you, Steph, for all those tongue-twisting names. I appreciate that. <laughs> Steph is a Marimba Anytime. One artist. He's been awarded residencies at Avalok Farm. It's Avalok. 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 You know what? <laughs> Farm Music Institute and Boston Center for the Arts and Artist Fellowships with the Antenna Cloud Farm Experimental Institute and Music for Food. He was a finalist, semi-finalist in South Carolina, South, Southern California Marimba International Artist Competition and a finalist in the Boston Conservatory Concerto Competition. Steph received his MM in marimba performance and BM in percussion performance from the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley. And his primary teachers included Nancy Zeltzman and Sam Solomon. He resides on unceded land of the Neponset Band of the Massachusetts Tribe, mm -hmm. colonial, colonially known as Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who will hear our voices from this studio here at WBCALP 102.9 FM in Boston. We are in Boston on colonial, colonially named land Boston, but it's Massachusetts, which actually is a tribe. That's not what this show is about tonight. But when you have people of color in the room and you want to tap into that kind of, an that kind of energy from the ancestors and you have young people because I think I can claim being the oldest person up in here. I don't mind it. You know, there's something to be said for for a thriving and surviving, especially now in these days, being a black person. And you know, it's not even say person of color, because then you have to ask what color. Mm -hmm. And that's another show. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Africans, African-Americans. But then when you talk about castle of our skin and skins, mm -hmm. you can't always tell from somebody's skin who they is. Right? Because all skin folk and not kin folk. So welcome to this edition um, of Black Teachers Matter. I have two artists. I actually have three in front of me. Not counting my illustrious um, radio technician. What are you? You might sort of my director, too. My switcher. He's, he, Brett Rodriguez is my everything tonight, you guys. Because he's allowing me to be able to think and switching camera angles and making sure our audio is great. So thank you. 
all of you guys in the studio, but the energy in the studio around all these young people is electric. And I love being around the energy of my people, people of color. There's something when you have indigenous people from the diaspora coming together who are creatives. And as great as any one particular person is, there's always more of a greatness and an energy with all of us coming together. So I thank you guys for this moment that we're here together. I want to talk to you guys about you being artists and being creatives and coming together with this belonging performance. There was only one performance, correct? Right. So in the um, performance, and I'm going to start again with the queen. Sorry. <laughs> Not sorry. <laughs> what was the part that you played? Because you're a spoken word artist, you're an artist. And so there were so many different ways that you could go with this. So how did you become connected to this project? Mm-hmm. And what of what of it did you do that you brought you to that made it unique? I know that's a bunch, right? That's a beautiful question. Um I met Jenny through Design for Social Intervention Studio, where we curated a festival together. Um, And I've taken a couple of classes from Jenny. Um, And so I've been able to sit in a dance, or not sit, really move in one of her dance classes and have always been moved by the way that she teaches Mm -hmm. her choreographed class. um, Because she doesn't just teach it as a sort of something that you do. She teaches it as a practice, and I, I thought it was a really beautiful experience. And so um, when she asked me to be a part of this project, um, I immediately said yes. And um, the piece that I brought into the performance was really thinking about the ways that belonging um, could um, be uh, could be an invitation through words. And so um, Jenny does a really beautiful job through movement and thinking about the ways that storytelling can be interpreted or can be embodied. Um, and so my own way of also challenging myself to think about what the question she posed, which is what does it mean to belong, is to think about the ways that words um, or voice can be a part of belonging. And I think... Most of the times when we speak, we want to be heard, we want to be seen, and that's a form of belonging. Um, and so my my invitation to the audience was really thinking about how can I not be the only one that speaks? How can I invite other people to also usher in their own voice to this performance, even when they planned on coming to just watch um, or be entertained in a, in a matter of way? And, um, and a lot of the ways that I... Um, think about performance is not necessarily as I'm the expert or I'm someone that has all the talent in the room, but really thinking about the ways that I can um, perform with people, that I can hear other people's voices, that other folks can also um, hear their own voice in ways that they didn't pre- and the, in ways that they didn't um, prepare to. So, Gija, this is and Steph. I don't think I forgot about you. I'm gonna come to you too. The performance itself, for those people who did not go and see the performance, it was supposed to be an audience participation piece. How did that work when it came to your performance? Um, Yes. So there were questions that was asked to the to the audience Mm -hmm. um, to to um, be able to to contribute to the piece. And so one of the the pieces that I do often is thinking about Toni Morrison's work in Beloved. Okay. Um, Baby Shugs, who invites the people into the clearing, she um, she asked the men to, to sing. She asked the children to dance, and then she tells the women to cry. And so I was really moved by that sermon. And so lately I've been using that as an invitation to, to, to people to be able to 
to cry or to yell or to sing or to move their bodies um, and using baby shugs as a way or yeah. as a guide rather um, to invite people to do that thing. Um, in addition, I, I also asked folks um, to say their names as the beginning and ending of a prayer or to say an ancestor's name, um, someone who has transitioned into another realm um, and, and, also calling them, their memory into the space. And so it was my own way of evoking and challenging people to um, to say something to mm. contribute to the space. And be engaged. Mm-hmm. So Steph, you are a marimbist. What part of... Thank you, Eugene John. Um, Steph, so you are a marimbist and were you the only musician that actually... Did you have your instrument on the stage and could people come up and touch your instrument? Because I know most people, they don't let anybody touch your instrument because you get it out of tune. But what was the part of um, that you were playing? And then also, how did you engage the audience in, in this particular production of Belonging? Yes, um, the instrument definitely was there. And I suppose people could have touched it. Maybe a few people did after, but it wasn't like the vibe. Right, right. <laughs> um, yes, I, um, I also met Jenny through Boston Center for the Arts. Um, and became aware of her dance company and mm-hmm. her work, and we seemed really aligned. And she reached out, and she wanted a marimba player. And I was like, wow, yes, this is my dream. I would love to collaborate with dance and spoken word and everything. So I sent her a few pieces of um, that sort of I thought spoke to her theme of belonging, and from there she chose the music. Um, I was not the only musician. There was also a guitarist, Siad Wells, um, Castellar Skinsis, new executive director as of a few months ago. Um, And yeah, so I provided the music with dance, with spoken word. Jija kind of weaved in and out of a piece, and that was a really magical collaboration. Mm -hmm. Um, And as far as audience participation, it wasn't as perhaps explicit as Jija with the voice and inviting folks to say their name and, and, and engage in that way, but something about the marimba I feel like touches people, like inside of people. Mm. Um, in West Africa, where the instrument comes from, the jeel, that instrument is, is a sacred instrument and was thought that when it's played, it levels out the water in our bodies and makes mm. everything feel balanced. So sometimes I feel like I'm providing myself medicine when I'm playing and I hope I'm providing other people with medicine for their bodies um, and touching people in that way. The voice you just listened to is Steph Davis, a marimbist, and also one of the performers in the recent production of Belonging. You're listening to WBCALP 102.9 FM in Boston, Boston's community radio station. Um, I want to take a break for a quick second so that we can calibrate. You're listening to Black Teachers Matter. I'm your host, Sharon Hinton, and our guests are G. Jaw and Steph Davis. And we're talking about Castles of Our Skins. We'll be right back. What is dedication? My biggest fear in the middle of my addiction was that my kids wouldn't have a father. And I started thinking, you know what? This isn't my story. I definitely had to become a better man to be a better father. It's important to me that my kids are empowered and truly believe that if if they can think it, they can do it. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. You're listening to WBCALP, 102.9 FM, Boston, Boston's community radio station. Welcome back here, Black Teachers Matter. 
I'm your host, Sharon Hinton, and the producer. And tonight, we are talking about the castle of our skins, the recent production belongings, and my two guests are Jija, who's a Ghanaian-American folklore performing artist, author, and curator. She's also a spoken word artist. Steph Davis, who's a marimbist, composer, arranger, and African studies scholar and cultural activist. Welcome back. Um, we've got a few more moments, maybe about 20 minutes or so, but I really wanted to get into the fact that uh, the whole African connection, right, um, is an African-American and someone who um, struggled to claim a country that's never claimed me and a flag and a culture. And we're steeped in this conversation about culture and skins. And um, so today there was a, a workshop that I attended. It was like a forum at the Schomburg Center in uh, New York, talking about the need for black history and fighting for black history. And so that means, I mean, as I'm reading, you know, where you guys are from and what we're claiming in terms of ground, and Steph talked about being on indigenous land. I mean, Massachusetts, the Ponza Bend. Um, and there are, in my other, <laughs> my other show, is a brother, Joel McCall, who has a, an organization called Reidrin, and he does black history, and he does a lot of the um, tours from Faneuil Hall, which there are activists that are trying to change the name of Faneuil Hall because it's named after Peter Faneuil, a slaveholder. And, and, and Jijar, you're claiming, you know, Ghanaian-American folklore. Your parents are, but you were South Carolina, so you've got that, that real, like the African... North Carolina. I mean, North Carolina, I'm sorry, because there's different states, for real. Very much so. Um, different people, <laughs> different, different rhythm. You talk okay. about different rhythms, for real, for real. So, But I'm saying you have this Southern and African-American experience as well as mm-hmm. African experience, and you're claiming that. And, and also, Steph is claiming that, too, because you're from Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, and then... So, when you are... I'm trying to ask you the question, when you are tapping into music, especially when it's anything that has a, a timber to it, marimbas have a timber mm-hmm. and a certain tone to it, drums have a certain timber and a tone to it, it's almost like you can feel it in your heart, like you can feel it in your mm-hmm. spirit, right? What happens to you when you're performing in, in a production that's in the black community? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know who showed up at the production, I wasn't there, mm-hmm. but for me, the call and response thing is like church. There's so many different things that we do mm-hmm. that are call and response that goes back to the motherland, right? Mm-hmm. And But then you're doing it in an environment where people are really trying to find mm-hmm. where they are. So the whole concept of belong, belonging, and, and I'm digging deeper into that for a reason. As a school teacher, um, I hear that applied to other people who are never displaced. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to get deep up in here. So there are, in the Boston Public Schools, the majority of the teachers are not teachers of color. Mm-hmm. But there are curriculums that talk about belonging. And I'm like, well, how can you really relate? Because mm-hmm. there's always been space made for you. Mm-hmm. So in doing this, this production, Belonging, how did it tap into you and into your spirit and into your roots and how you how you identify. Do you mm-hmm. understand the question mm-hmm. I'm asking you? Mm-hmm. So um, this time I'm going to go for the king first. <laughs> Steph? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I guess when, when I perform, I try to be authentic. Mm. 
and that inevitably leads to vulnerability. And when I think about belonging, I think about times when I feel most in my body, most prepared to take risks around mm. people I trust or in communities that there has been trust built. Um, and I really think about just like no filter, kind of. Mm. So that's, that's safety so that you can be you. Right. Because I, I think that as artists, when we're authentic, we we touch so many more people than than when than when we're not when than when we're putting on sort of a face. So in this production, and sometimes that's very difficult, you know, getting up in front of people, performing. When I'm when I get into the music, my face be doing whatever it wants to do, and mm-hmm. all these anxieties sort of creep in. But when you're performing for me for last night, kind of letting those go so mm-hmm. I can deliver my most vulnerable, my most authentic self. So that perhaps people listening can tap into their own sense of vulnerability, their own mm-hmm. um, most authentic self through through that medium. Mm-hmm. G-John, so your instrument is your voice. Yeah. And I've been in groups and in bands and everything, and um, there's a space that you have to carve out when your instrument is your voice mm-hmm. versus people that are actually mu- musicians. Not, not you, Steph, but I've dealt with some musicians who figure, well, you know, I'm a bass guitar, I'm a this, I'm a that, where they have an instrument. But there's a certain amount of respect and there's a different kind of an energy when you are the instrument. Mm-hmm. Tell me the difference between, or do you feel there is a difference? Um, maybe. Um, I've only ever known my voice as an instrument, so I can't, and I think I've just started to experiment with um, an un, a physical instrument, but um. I don't know. I don't know if there is that much of a difference. I think someone who plays a marimba like Steph is able to command and have conversation with the body or the audience differently than the ways that I Mm -hmm. would. Um, And, you know, when watching Steph perform, there is sort of this, like, you just feel Steph play. Um, And he's, and he's right. His his face does transform, (laughs) but it's, it's, you are there with him. Um, and I, I keep thinking about the first time he played uh, Deep River, um, which is the opening song, um, or, or rather the second song to the opening. And I remember it being in rehearsal and, and crying. Mm. And this is just me watching Steph play, right? And, like, he embodied the the sound, and, and when he played it, it's just... you. You sort of are sitting with the heaviness of the song. And even if you don't know the lyrics of Deep River, you feel it. Like there's there's something that the melody does that's having a conversation with your body. Um, and, and I think, you know, as as a poet, I, I do it differently. I, I'm able to, to sort of speak a familiar language in ways that melody is a different type of familiar language. Um, and, yeah, I, I think we both are embodying and, and commanding attention or having conversation with the audience in very different ways. So I'm not sure there is a difference between someone who uses their voice as an instrument compared to someone who uses a physical instrument. Um, yeah. It, it's funny you say that because when I play, I, I try to sing. Mm. I try to make it like the voice. Mm. I think that's really beautiful. And someone else who does that, uh, John Coltrane, I, I heard um, whenever he was writing um, Love Supreme, there was a song called Praise, and he had played, he had wrote the poem and played mm. 
the poem. And I, I love that about musicians, how you're able to to do like it's such a poetic experience to, to witness. One of the yeah. one of the greatest musicians, my opinion, mm-hmm. was Prince. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the performance that he had um, of George Harrison when my guitar sings, mm-hmm. when my gu- guitar weeps. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm around musicians. I actually not in the most recent years since I had three strokes, but I was would play music and drums and, and uh, piano and stuff. And it is a different thing. There's a different, um, when you have musicians around you and, and, and stuff, you talked about that safety, you know, there's something that happens when you're either a vocalist or musician and you have these, the symphony and the harmony of all that music coming together and makes it something else. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you hit it, Right. You know, when you hit it, especially if you're in the studio and you're going to record it and then you've got different vocalists and stuff and you hit it and everybody goes, ah, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Mm-hmm. So he got the smile on his face. He knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like, do it again. Can we do that again? And sometimes there's just that moment and that energy. Um, I was telling somebody a couple of days ago when I had gone to um, Atlanta with my daughter and we came back to a blackout performance. It was called a blackout performance at the Huntington. And so the warmth and the safety of going to an Atlanta, Georgia, where the majority of people look like me, mm-hmm. on the plane going down and then there and then coming back, you could feel the cold. It was it was it was deep. Like you mm-hmm. you could feel it. Uh, when I've gone to like New Orleans to the jazz, the Essence Jazz Festival, and then you could see it on the plane, everybody's like, Hey, how y'all doing? Da, da, da. You get down there and the, you smell the you know, the food and you and the rhythm and then you come back and it's on the plane and you're like, Ugh, we know we're heading back to Boston. I mean you can just feel it. It's like, uh even the even the stewardess, I'm not mentioning the airline, even she was like cold and kind of stiff. I was like, Oh, we're heading back to Boston now. So we came back, um, and the next night was a blackout performance. Uh, Joe Turner's come and gone at the Huntington Theater. It was amazing. And the majority of people were people from the African diaspora. And you know, we talk back. I mean, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Whether it's in church, can I get an amen? Mm-hmm. Amen. God is good all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we do. Call and response, whether you're singing. And so it becomes part of the performance. So I understand doing something like belonging, mm-hmm. um, where you feel like you belong, and then other people feel like they belong, and it becomes something else. So in, in <laughs> we could talk forever. What are some of the things that you guys are going to do after this? I mean, there's the production that's happening. As, as I heard when I was young, Saturday, December 2nd, mm-hmm. at the Bethel AME Church in Jamaica Plain, the Bethel AME Church is actually pastored by um, Gloria White Hammond, who is, uh, she's one of the pastors, the senior pastors, and she she was my daughter's pediatrician. Mm-hmm. So I know her and her husband and her daughter, mm-hmm. who is now doing... Um, Climate change work with Mary Wu, Mariama, amazing family. And also a pastor. Okay. Also a reverend okay. at New Roots Church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Along with, with the daddy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, the White Hammonds, Ray Hammond. I mean, when you see people in the community and they're doing that and that's who they are, um, and we claim them, and there's a safety about going to that church. Um, and it's, 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 you know, it's the AME church, which is a different vibe. Um, but it's still a vibe mm-hmm. and it's still, a, so that's going to be at Bethlehem, which is no, no surprise considering where it's going to be. So are you guys going to be in that production or do you have other things coming up? What's going on? 
I'm Steph. I'm not going to be in that production, but I'm going to be at that production. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. That production is um, exploring Pan-African ideals with music from South Africa, Uganda, um, the United States, or if you want to call it African America. Um, so I'm definitely going to be there. Yeah. I'll be also in attendance. I will not be in the So, So what's coming up for either one of you? Jijo, what, what are you doing? Um, currently... Trying to finish the semester. Um, Where? Where are um, you? I'm a student at BU. Um, God bless I'm, you. I'm getting my master's in divinity. $60,000 a year. Hello. Um, my scholarship. Um, <laughs> Praise uh, God for the scholarship. Indeed, Can we get amen? Indeed it is. Um, so I'm walking into a, a, a season of rest, but um, in preparation for a series of um, a show called Reconfiguring God, um, which is exploring the voices of black women in religious spaces um, mm. over time. So thinking about what that means to bring their voices to surface um, and, and making sure that people are paying attention to their words because their words still sort of carry into the times and the climate that we're walking into now. Um, and then hopefully releasing a project called Wilderness, which is also inspired by these black women voices, but mainly from Hagar in the Old Testament. So that is what I'm working on, which is hope to release and um, be performed and exhibited next year. Now, how close um, are you to graduating? We're going to have to talk about that. <laughs> that was a long, it's not close enough. Um, That's what that side was, not close Ho enough. Hopefully soon, hopefully soon, hopefully soon. Hopefully yeah. soon. And Steph? Yes, I have a performance in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the Harvard Smith Center oh. um, on December 4th with Marimba and Cello. Um, and besides that, I'm working on a collection of marimba arrangements and adaptations of music by black composers to mm -hmm. reclaim that instrument on this continent um, and also working on my debut album so to be released next year. What are some of the marimbas that maybe from back in the day that somebody like me would remember? Would I remember anybody that... <laughs> it, it depends. The vibraphone really... It depends. You might know some vibraphone players. Who? Like, gosh, this is putting me on the spot. It I'm is. a marimba player. That's supposed to be your business. You're supposed <laughs> well, let to me know. see. Do you know Kakarabo Lobi? He's he's actually a geo player. Who? Kakarabo Lobi. No. He's a Ghanaian, a late Ghanaian geo player. He has a song, SK Kakarabo. They both have. That's a current guy. I mean, mm -hmm. is anybody like, uh, I'm trying to think, man. Because I remember this, I remember that, <laughs> okay, that instrument being around. And so, Nicole and her wisdom said it's like a xylophone, but you know it's it sort of it looks like one, but it's not like one because mm -hmm. it has a different sound. It's actually made of different materials. Um, mm -hmm. Is is it used in the same type of music? No, no. I mean sometimes, but not typically. Xylophone kind of came in as a solo instrument with ragtime, sometimes in jazz bands, sometimes in the symphony. The marimba, kind of in in the Western context. Rose is a solo instrument, is sometimes in this context used in symphony orchestras, but not too often. So it's kind of a niche. You, you see it every now and then. Mm -hmm. But because of that, it's, it's, it, it wasn't always like that. So what attracted you to the marimba? The sound. Mm -hmm. Like I really think when I, was, uh, when I was in sixth grade, I played my first marimba note. Wait, 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 wait. You were in the sixth grade exposed to marimba how? Okay, so in, and it's not like this in Boston, and I learned that when I came up Hello, here for school. Hello, that's why I'm asking. But <laughs> in Florida, and I still think it's like this, most public schools have band programs, 
And in the band program, they'll have a percussion section. And if you're lucky, you'll, your percussion section will have usually a xylophone and sometimes a marimba. So I was at a school that had a marimba and I started band in sixth grade, played that first note. And that was it pretty much. So let me, so this name of this program is Black Teachers Matter. Um, we're in WBCA LP, 102.9 FM in Boston, Boston's community radio station. And when we talk about, so I'm a black teacher, I've been teaching for over 40 years and I've been in uh, Boston public schools for a while. And I remember where there were music programs in every single Boston public schools. There were um, what they called um, home economics. They basically taught you how to cook and balance a checkbook and how to clean your house. Um, and then there was also shop. I mean, in every elementary school. And so there's, you know, we're not going to get into that today, how that was very politically uh, mandated by um, <clears throat> white supremacists. And uh, <laughs> let's just keep it real. This is Black Teachers Matter, I can say it. Well, teachers matter. Yes, I know all teachers will matter when black teachers matter. Mm -hmm. So let's just put that to rest right now. Mm -hmm. um, but marimba is more like, an, you said African. So you're talking African, African diaspora and up through. But I remember um, associating the marimba with more Caribbean cultures mm -hmm. and stuff too. Mm -hmm. So is that, and Florida has a heavy Caribbean mm -hmm. influence. So do you think that that had something to do with that actual instrument being present in a public school? Um. Not in the public school that I was at. Okay. So no. how did it show up there? Just God's divine? It's like, <laughs> I want to get Steph to be playing the marimba. Well, the, the marimba that I play in, in the school that I was exposed to mm -hmm. has a colonial relationship. It was appropriated. So By whom? By the U.S. Because there's a lot of colonial powers. There's the French, <laughs> there by, the Dutch, the British, By white, Spanish. European, descended U.S. Mm. settlers. Mm. Um, so unfortunately, an instrument that arrived to the land via the transatlantic slave trade mm -hmm. has been taken out of the community, locked away behind higher education institutions, um, and, has, and has, been, has been appropriated. So... That's why a lot of my work is about reclaiming the Africanity of the so-called Western marimba um, so it can show up in more black students' hands. More. And what would be the significance of... So the significance of having a black teacher by grade three is that you're 13% more likely to graduate high school. Mm -hmm. If you have two teachers in your elementary grades, you are 40% more likely... 7% more likely to go to college, but 40% more likely to graduate. So what is the significance of bringing this art education to all students, but specifically students of color and students of the African diaspora? Mm. I'm looking at you, Steph. You're looking oh, at her. Okay. I'm talking <laughs> to you, bro. <laughs> um, I think in, in, in the U.S. it contributes to a positive cultural esteem for black students. Mm. Um Knowing me in my childhood, I wouldn't have made it if I didn't have the marimba. So mm. it's an outlet. It's an, another outlet of many, but extending the amount of outlets that black students have to self-actualize. Okay. Um, and to really view the marimba as the symbol of African and African-American culture that it mm -hmm. is. Um, I think that's really important, especially when it comes to building a positive cultural esteem in a pervasive anti-black environment. Yeah. And, and speaking of belonging. You know right? I was going like, to bring you anyway. Oh, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. well, I'm right on cue. <laughs> Here you go. Um, but speaking of belonging, it's important 
you know, that black teachers are in the classroom because that is where we're most vulnerable. If we are taught about ourselves in ways that we can feel seen or heard, then we're more than likely to pursue things or more than likely to be curious um, and find a space to play with our curiosity in ways that the world or rather our society that we currently live in, live in forces us to sort of confine or, or conform into whatever they're forcing us to think or to, to be. Um, but I, I think I was privileged um, and growing, growing up in North Carolina, all, all I had was a lot of black teachers who saw me in different ways, who were like, girl, you can act, you know, keep doing it. Or this is a beautiful poem. Keep saying your poetry or your voice is needed or who saw me and, and signed me up for things that I didn't really give them permission for, but but I, I but it was an exploration. It was a place where I could play around with who I was or mm-hmm. find my voice. Um, and it was because a lot of the black teachers um, saw me and and saw where my curiosity was going. And so I think that's very important that black teachers are in the classroom. Now, do you um, are you guys actually teaching proteges? Like, do you have students that you're teaching? At this moment, no, because I'm in school um, mm-hmm. and I do work at Northeastern, so I'm constantly in conversation with students. Whoop, whoop. Um, I'm a husky too. Okay, then. <laughs> um, so I'm working with with uh, grad students there, and then um, we also have a relationship with a uh, community partner called Freedom House, which is in Grove Hall. So I'm constantly in conversations with young people and getting them to use their talents to archive community histories, and so that's been really beautiful. Um, but I'm not teaching in the classroom as much anymore. Um, mm. But every time I get invited back, I always go back. So do you remember, and I'm, I'm really going to challenge you, do you remember the first thing you, that you wrote or that you spoke? Mm. I do remember the first poem that I wrote. It was a love poem. Um, and I can't tell you what it was about, but I do remember <laughs> um, turning it into my ninth grade English teacher and my English teacher giving it back to me in tears. And she said to me, do not stop writing. Keep writing wow. your poetry. This was such a beautiful poem. And I remember being like, sheesh, I did that. Um, and so ever since then, uh, my father, who was a pastor, and I say that as importance because that's who inspired it all, but I would be at the back of the church pew and just be writing little poems. I would rewrite verses. I would rewrite like stories from the Bible in ways that I wanted to um, write them with the ending that I really liked. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's really how I started to write mm. and what about you Steph the first time do you remember now you are a composer too right yes. mm-hmm. so do you remember the first song that you actually put together that you felt like wow that was really something yes I do mm-hmm. <laughs> well the first was probably me sitting at my little keyboard improvising mm. and how old were you oh, gosh um young give me, give me a range maybe five. single digits single digits single yes. digits okay <laughs> um but the first like notated square I wrote was called it was either hot pink or dark pink Mm. and it was a piano quartet for my band teacher at the time that I composed with Miss Madri Fleming my first composition teacher and yeah I still look for that piece I've lost it yeah (laughs) you have to find it (laughs) dark pink or hot pink or hot hot pink and the significance of pink which is the common denominator is? It was my middle school teacher's favorite color. So it was for her. Oh. So I wrote, mm. I think it was hot pink. And was mm. she a black teacher? No, no. The middle school band teacher was not. But the composition teacher I worked on the piece with was. And was there any difference or significance? Um, my first teacher that I remember that was really cool 
was my third grade teacher, Miss Tucker, and she was this white woman that looked like Betty Crocker. And to this day, I don't really remember why I liked her so much, but and how she could motivate me Mm -hmm. um, to just be the best student. She wasn't the initial motivator. It was really my parents and my father. Mm -hmm. He was the one. Um, He was the one that would give you homework. He was the one that would ask, like, what did you read now? And then add something else. My father was a black nationalist. And so my great grandparents were Garveyites. And so mm-hmm. that was like in the house. It was like, no, take that white boy off the wall. Cause you know, black African-Americans would have like JFK mm-hmm. and Jesus and Martin Luther <laughs> King or something. He was like, no, take that white boy off the wall. And there is no Santa. I worked too hard giving you these presents to think some Listen. white boy with a red bag is bringing Listen. this stuff up here. He was like, no, I'm Santa. <laughs> I'm saying it and get over here and sell these Christmas trees and I give you 30%. And I was like, but dad, it's like a present. It's a gift. Ain't nobody going to give you nothing. If you want something, you have to go get it. And it's 30% on these trees. I was like, wow, how is he my dad? But um, later on, I appreciated it. And um, actually I passed that on to my daughter. And so um, in the last 10 minutes or so that we have, nine minutes or so that we have, I don't know if either one of you have children, but if you do, what do you pass on to your children? If you don't, what would you like to pass on? Not just the biological children, because I feel like I have hundreds of children. I'm a school teacher. Mm-hmm. What is it that you want to pass on from what you've learned mm-hmm. and what you want them to remember from an encounter with you? That's such a beautiful question. I don't have children, um, but I'm constantly in conversation with young folk. And the thing that I have taught or facilitated in workshops and also in conversation is to really think about what are the ways that you could play? Like what world, thinking of Octavia E. Butler's question, what world, what do you, what do we, what do we do now with the world Mm -hmm. that we want to create? Or what do we want to create and what do we have to do now in order to create that world? And I think a lot about play and curiosity and so much of that as we get older is shrunken, is, you know, told to be ignored, is told to be watered down. And so my message to young folk is to play, to be curious, mm-hmm. um, to know that they have the power to create new worlds and destroy old ones. Wow. Mm-hmm. Steph? Very similar. Mm-hmm. It would be to, to believe in your imagination mm-hmm. and like to really, really, really believe in it. Mm-hmm. Like the wildest thing you can imagine can happen. And, and, and you said it beautifully at, at Belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you say? It was another world is here. Mm-hmm. Another world is possible. Another world is necessary. Another world is here. Mm-hmm. And the imagination can, can, can get us there. Indeed it can. Mm-hmm. You know, I was at the um, Dave Chappelle show couple of weeks ago in Boston, right? The one that was, his social media is being so controversial. I was there. And also being a member of uh, the media, community media in particular, it's always interesting to see how the media, broadcast media, uh, tells the story about us. <laughs> and so I was at that con- I was at that concert. He was amazing. And um, God bless everybody who could pay for a ticket at that show. My man was sold out on Thursday and they added another show and both shows were sold out. So the controversy was um, supposedly he made some anti-Semitic remarks, you know, around the war in between Israel and Palestine. So he kept saying, no, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about that. I have material here. 
going to hold show here. I don't want to talk about it. Okay, since you want to talk about it, there's a tragedy on both sides. People are dying on both sides. Women and children being killed on both sides. There's war crimes on both sides. So the people in the audience had yelled out, you know, shut the F up. Screamed out to him, shut the F up. And he's like, what? You paid for a ticket to my show to hear me talk, and then you want to say shut the F up? What's wrong with you, right? So we knew he had the cheapest seats, though, because we had Harry's way up there. But... And so then he, the guy got up and I guess walked out. So in the news media, they said it was a quarter of the audience. That's not true. It was a couple of people. And he did he did not say anything in a Semitic. The guy got up and he walked out. And he says, that's a punk move. He says, first, you're going to drop a bomb like that, a verbal bomb like that. And then you're going to get up and walk out. So that's what's happening. People keep dropping these bombs. And they don't want to come and just talk and find out, you know, where we agree so that we're just not hating on each other. And so he was talking about how, you know, it's really about love and loving people's humanity and being human beings. None of that got reported in the news media, which is what I love about what we're doing tonight here at WBCA LP 102.9 FM in Boston. Boston's community radio station. There's a lot of community media that needs to be supported that will not be reported. And if it is, it may not probably be by one of us. Because you can have skin folk but they ain't kinfolk, right? And so they look like us, but then the, the narrative is anti-us for whatever reason. So I appreciate you both coming on and being your authentic selves. Um, Nicole knows me, man. I could talk a dog off a meat wagon. I, I, I love to talk to people who are fascinating. Both of you guys fascinating um, and interesting to me. Um, I love people and I love my people and you young people just give me hope mm. that... Um, all of the fighting and the dying and stuff that we've done has not been in vain. Critical race theory in the last few moments, because basically black history, African history, African-American history is American history. And both of you guys are teachers. You teach empowerment workshops or you're teaching about your music, your instrument. Um, what is it that you want people to take away we talked about this, but I'm, I'm sort of knuckling down on this because I don't assume that uh, I want to be 120 years old with legs like Tina Turner, but I don't assume that the next moment is mine. So whoever is listening to your voice right now, and I'm going to start with Gija because we're going to go back to the queen. What is it that you want people to remember? And I'll start this off with prefacing something that, that uh, Dave Chappelle said that I'm still thinking about. And he said, he told a little story about a guy. He went into a club and this guy was dancing, you know. And he said, oh, Dave Chappelle, I always dreamed about meeting you. And Dave Chappelle talked about when he was, he's living his dream now. When he was younger, he always thought about filling out and packing arenas and being funny and being his authentic self. And so he says he's living the dream now, even more so after walking away from $50 million. He's living it now. So he said, just remember that while you are living your dream you're also part of somebody else's dream. Mm -hmm. And so he talked about this man who's, I've been dreaming about meeting you. There are going to be people that have seen your production, seen you in the production, who are going to say, Gija, oh, I can do that. Oh, she can do that. I can do that. Mm -hmm. Steph Davis, oh, he can do that. I can do that. I was thinking about this instrument. So what is your dream? And what part of a dream have you been to someone else? Mm -hmm. Gija. I'll answer the first piece. Um <clears throat> And in thinking about the current state of the world and thinking a lot about liberation, I think that all of our liberations are tied to each mm -hmm. other. And if I could quote uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, 
that says that um, none of us are free until all of us are free. Um, and in speaking about dreams, I, I really believe and, and really want, um, when I'm not an Afro-pessimist, <laughs> I really want us to experience liberation. Um, you know, with that being said, cease the fire in Palestine and, and, you know, caring and sending love to the Palestinians, but really thinking about all of our liberation being tied to each other, um, that the, 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 the harm that is being done in countries like Congo and Palestine Gaza, all of these things, like we are all tied to each other. And I can't sit here and experience liberation without my brother and my sister or my family, my sibling experiencing liberation as well. And so um, a dream of mine would be that we all get to experience true liberation, true freedom. Um, and in ways that doesn't mean that we have to oppress someone else. And Steph Davis, your dream. Mm-hmm. My dream. I'm. I'm gonna borrow imagery from Adrienne Marie Brown. Mm. I was in a comer, I was in a workshop with her, and she described collective liberation as, as this garden that we're planning, and that we can't force others to come to the garden, but we can work and build the garden so it's prepared for anyone as they wish to enter. Mm-hmm. So my dream is that for this next season, this next year, that um, I don't know. I just continue to build my garden with others. And that as others come to the garden, it, it's prepared to accept as many people as it can hold. Um, my dream is also to never forget whose shoulders I'm standing on, mm-hmm. that, that we're not alone in that, that it's a lineage. Um, and that, that gives me hope and, and sustenance and power and that we can remember remember all the ancestors yeah. thank you so much and you. i remember everyone who was listening to the sounds of our voices thank you so much g john wonderful g john thank and you. thank you so much steph davis my guest for this evening thank you, thank you also nicole maxi bringing your peoples around so we can find out more about them um and also remember about this upcoming production it's called as i heard when i was young saturday december 2nd 2023 bethel ame church jamaica plain at 3 p.m. And also, I want to thank my technical director and my um, producer. No, you're not really co-producing it, but he's definitely my engineer. I'll say my engineer, uh, Brett Rodrigues. I couldn't do this tonight without him, and I couldn't do this tonight without you. So thank you for being here for another edition of Black Teachers Matter here on WBCA LP 102.9 FM in Boston, Boston's community radio station. The views and opinions that you've just heard are not necessarily those of WBCA, uh, WBCA or BNN TV, BNN Media. My name is Sharon Hinton. Take care of yourselves and each other. God bless.